Welcome to another edition of the Blue Ribbon College Basketball Podcast. We'll talk some hoops over the next few minutes. Also, Seth Greenberg is going to join us from ESPN coming up shortly. Kevin Ingram alongside Chris Dorch. And ready for another episode, and uh, maybe a little bit later in the show, we will have a uh, spoiler-filled review of the Book of Boba Fett, which is the new Star Wars series that is out, uh, kind of similar to what we did with The Mandalorian uh, in, in the last couple of years. Chris, how you doing, man? Good, and as I recall, that Mando uh, recap was the fastest-growing segment in our <laughs> in our podcast, so uh, uh, doing pretty well. I've I'll tell you, getting blue in the face, holding my breath and crossing my fingers, just hoping that another game or another team doesn't have to get shut down because of the escalating uh, Omicron virus. I know more about the Greek uh, alphabet than I ever cared to know. Uh, but, yeah, it's it's been frustrating, I know, for fans, for coaches and players when when teams either have to shut down or they go and travel without some of their best players like Tennessee did when it went to Alabama last week without John Fulkerson and Kennedy Chandler and still almost pulled out a win. And I talked to Rick Barnes a couple of days after that, and I know they were really frustrated, but that's, you know, such is life. Yeah, it has made it tough for teams. And, you know, we, we've experienced a little bit of that with Vanderbilt, uh, the, the trip out to Hawaii. Uh, we were supposed to play Stanford, and, and that game got canceled, the championship of the Diamond Head Classic. But you, know, you kind of keep your fingers crossed and uh, hope everybody uh, can be okay and you can have uh, all or, or at least most of your players ready to go. Uh, I've seen hundreds of games canceled, uh, men's and women's, with the uh, Omicron variant of the virus spreading very quickly. And, you know, unfortunately, COVID has become a big story in a, in a third consecutive college basketball season it seems like this sport has been hit harder than maybe any other sport uh, by the coronavirus over the last couple years I guess the good news to all this is uh, in terms of level of sickness uh, this variant isn't nearly as potent as uh, some of the others for especially for those who've been vaccinated or vaccinated and received the booster and some new guidelines have come out in recent days that can help uh, with student athletes potentially able to return in five days instead of maybe 10 if they test positive. So hopefully that will help in terms of uh, getting games played and getting uh, players back and ready to go again. Uh, the, the AP poll this week, Baylor got all 61 of the first place votes, Duke second, Purdue third, Gonzaga, UCLA, even though they haven't played in, a, in about a month uh, now at this point. But, uh, you know, you, you see the polls, you see the uh, Joe Lenardi bracketology, but who know, knows how it's all going to really look. Uh, here in a few weeks, you know, you hope things will settle down and we'll kind of get back to a little more normal maybe when uh, February gets here and certainly by, by tournament time, Chris. I really hope so. I, I mean, I, I can see where where the average citizen would be confused by advice that's coming from the CDC and others. But the, in the defense of, of those organizations, I, I think that this enemy is, is a forever changing uh, forever mutating and always invisible. Uh, so it's difficult to, to kind of predict. Other countries have, have had problems and have given us their research, but I don't know if it necessarily translates to our country. So it's been really frustrating. And you're right. I think college basketball has been hit probably worse than any other sport because unlike the NBA, you know, which has 30 teams, there's 355 or so Division yeah. one basketball teams and spread out all over the country, some in, in virus hotspots. And yeah, it, it has definitely affected this game uh, starting with March of 2020 when it broke all our hearts and, and they had to cancel the NCAA tournament. Chris, uh, we're in the middle of SEC country, so we, we talk about that conference quite a bit on our show. 
Uh, for me, I uh, called the games for Vanderbilt and opened up SEC play on Tuesday night at Arkansas with what was a, a really nice win. Vanderbilt held on to win 75-74, led by five with less than 30 seconds left, gave up a three-point play. And then Chris Likes, who is an 87% free throw shooter, missed the game-tying free throw. And uh, Arkansas had a couple threes to possibly win, uh, couldn't make them. Foul trouble, injuries for Vanderbilt, but got their fourth in a row and, and really one of the toughest places to win in the SEC uh, year in and year out at, at Bud Walton Arena. So a four-game win streak and a nice start to conference play for Jerry Stackhouse's team. And that felt like, to me, that that was maybe the biggest win since he has been coached there. And you start conference play off with a big road win. That's uh, about as good as it gets. It definitely does. Road wins are gold in any conference, but especially the SEC, which I think is going to be a, a rock fight all year. I'm curious, uh, you've added three uh, uh, arenas to your collection, which <laughs> I think you lost count. Uh, but give me your impressions of Bud Walton, uh, obviously one of the best facilities in the country. And when I don't know if it was full because of the virus, but boy, when that place gets rocking and the pig suey call, uh, it's it's pretty awe-inspiring. Yeah, it, it was pretty cool to go there. I, I'd watched games there for years, and uh, that's one I had not checked off the list. Uh, I think it's up around 120 uh, with the three new ones I've been to this year, Arkansas and Hawaii and SMU back uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, I... I took a lap around campus, and uh, I also saw the old Barnhill Arena, which was yeah. sort of the, the legendary I, home. I've covered games in there. Yeah, for for the Razorbacks. You know, you think back to days when, when Eddie Sutton was coach and, you know, the early days of Nolan Richardson before they moved over to Bud Walton. But uh, I, I thought Bud Walton Arena was a really cool place. It is built for basketball. The way it's configured, the stands come all all the way down to the court. Uh, most of the seats are in the lower bowl, and, and I, I'm kind of late to the party here. Lots of people have been there and, and know these things, but uh, it, it was it was pretty full. I would say it was probably three-fourths full for uh, the game on Tuesday night, but it, it got rocking in there a couple times, especially when Arkansas would you know make a big play, hit a big shot or, or whatever. But uh, I, I thought it was a cool place to do a game. Uh, you, the, the way it's configured for radio these days, and this is true of a lot of places, you sit at the scorer's table right next to your team's bench, and so uh, that, that's an interesting place to be. You, you get a little feel for what's going on. You got in the some TV time. Yeah, you get some yeah, TV time. Uh, the, the only downside to it is, is you have to look around the coach and, and officials uh, quite a bit of the time while the game's going on. So sometimes it's sort of hard to see, but uh, that, that's a neat perspective to uh, watch a game. But yeah, I thought Bud Walton Arena was really cool. Uh, they, they had that spot in the floor where Corliss Williamson had the uh, first dunk yeah. at the arena, and they still have that. They've, they've redone the floor over the years, but they still have that little marker on the court. And one thing I noticed, too, is uh, they're very proud of their 1994 national championship. Of course, when they beat Duke on the on the famous shot by, by, by Scotty Thurman, they not only have one championship banner, they have four championship banners. They have one in each corner. So pretty much anywhere you're sitting in the arena, you can see at least two or three of the, uh, the 1994 championship banners. But you, know, you think back to that time, uh, 94 and 95, they put to the uh, title game both years. They lost to UCLA in 95, and they had another great team that season. Uh, but they've been to several Final Fours, uh, went in 1990, went in 78, uh, have a couple more uh, in, in that collection too. So, yeah, really good tradition there in Arkansas. And I, I think Eric Musselman's trying to figure some things out with that team. They, it's a very different roster from what they had last year, and uh, they've added some transfers. They, they added about 4,000 points worth of transfers, but I think those guys are still sort of trying to find their way uh, they ran up a good record in the non-conference, but they didn't really play at the highest level of competition. And now they've started off 0-2 in the SEC. They lost to Mississippi State, and then Vanderbilt beat them on a Tuesday night. So kind of keep an eye on that Arkansas team, which I think uh, a lot of folks expect to be a contender in the SEC. 
but it was cool to add another one to my uh, collection of college basketball arenas. I'm going to uh, tack on a couple more this season. Uh, I've not done a game at Florida or South Carolina or at the uh, newer arena at Auburn. Uh, th- those will be and, – and Ole Miss as well. That's another one. Um, I've been to a few of the SEC places, but not all of them. So going to tack on Ole a couple Miss's more. Ole Miss's place is great. Yeah, I've heard it's beautiful. Uh, I was there a couple years ago. It's awesome. Uh, as we stay here in the SEC, is Auburn maybe the best team maybe in the country that nobody's talking much about? They're 13-1. and Their only loss was that double overtime game against UConn in the uh, battle for Atlantis. They've won their first two conference games, including a nice win over LSU, uh, ranked in the top ten. The freshman Jabari Smith has been fantastic, uh, 15.6 rebounds and two assists. And Walker Kessler, uh, we certainly uh, know his family's uh, history from, from Georgia days, but averaging 10 points and seven rebounds for the seven-footer. Yeah, I, I think Auburn is is formidable. And, I, I you know, we picked Auburn to be in our preseason top 25, as did most everybody. But I think the X factor – I mean, Jamar, Jabari Smith was was a highly rated recruit, but I think Chet Holmgren and, and the kid from Duke were rated higher. Uh, it's crazy the things he's done at 6'10". Uh, Jay Billis, friend of the show, um, said the other night that he was the most Kevin Durant-like player he's seen since Kevin Durant. Huh. Wasn't saying he's the next KD, but, you know, at 6'10", he can, he's shooting 42% from three. Bruce Pearl just called him the best shooter at his size in the country. And he fills out the box score in other ways, too. And then you're right, Walker Kessler is a man. Uh, when Bruce Pearl recruited him, and he, I think he lives just an hour or so from the Auburn campus. And uh, Bruce had known him since he was a sophomore in high school. But he's, he didn't really recruit him to say, hey, you can shoot threes and stuff. He recruited him to say, look, I think you can be a, an elite defender. And, boy, he's proven that out, especially with that triple-double he had the other day, and one of the doubles was 11 blocks. Right. Uh, he's getting lower, and, and he's gotten faster, and, he, and he's in elite shape or, or much better shape than he'd been in. And, uh, and that's no knock on Carolina's strength and conditioning, but Bruce, Bruce has his guys at a, at a certain playing condition, and Walker Kessler, I, I think, has taken that and run with it because he knows that at the next level, that's where he's going to be of, of real value is as a two-way player, but primarily as a big-time uh, ejector at the rim. What do you make of Kentucky? They lost to LSU 65-60 in Baton Rouge. Savir Wheeler got injured. They'll play Georgia on Saturday. They'll be here in Nashville on Tuesday. What do you think about that group, which had been playing some really good basketball before the other night at LSU? really had and I don't think the loss of Severe Wheeler can be uh, overstated. I mean, he was a guy that has led the country for most most of the season in assists and even though he's undersized at 5'8 or whatever they list him, uh, he's a dynamic playmaker and without him and then Ty Ty Washington in the game uh, I was able to see quite a bit of it. I think he got, he was out due to cramps or something and then they, they really didn't just have a true uh, setup guy, and I, I think that hurt them against LSU, which has really hung its hat on defense this year after being a, a scoring dynamo last year. But I think Kentucky's all right. I, anytime you can line up with Oscar Shibway, you've got a chance. That guy is unbelievable. Uh, I wrote a, a piece on him for our newsletter the other day. Uh, he's already got four 20-plus board games. I mean, he's just r- ridiculous, and he's he's scoring the ball with more confidence, too. So 
they're going to be okay. They've got just enough shooting. I think uh, uh, Kellen Grady, the Davidson transfer, is shooting the ball better. Uh, you know, he's a, he's not the next uh, Seth uh, or Steph Curry, as some some yeah. suggested. He might have been at Davidson, but he can shoot the cover off of it. So they're going to be okay. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. I heard him talking about how when he got to Kentucky, the first thing they did was make some adjustments in his shot. Uh, keep talking about Kellen Grady to uh, you know, make it a little more efficient. And I, I thought he was a really nice player at Davidson and, and having a good year for the Wildcats. A couple more SEC teams. Uh, Alabama is 2-0. and They beat Tennessee the other night. They won at Florida uh, on the road to improve to 2-0. and And then there was Tennessee and Ole Miss. Uh, Tennessee somehow won that game in overtime on Wednesday. I, I really thought they were toast trying to solve the different defenses that Kermit Davis throws at you. Uh, they did enough to win. They hit some shots. But, man, they're a team that can really be offensively challenged. It, it's a weird box score. I, I always study their box scores in particular in all the league. They had 21 assists on 25 made baskets and 17 steals. And you would think, well, you know, they won that in a walk, you know, but they struggled to get it to overtime. Didn't lead until overtime. I think this team uh, doesn't know how good it is in terms of its quickness and ability to drive the ball and get to the rim. They've just got to start doing that. Uh, when they crawled back into it, it's when Zakai Ziegler, their little freshman point guard, and Kennedy Chandler, of course, the five-star point guard, started taking it to the rim. Otherwise, uh, San Diego Vescovi, which he likes, is suddenly pronouncing his name differently than it was before. Not that he cares, uh, but he was pretty much blanketed until those little point guards started getting to the rim. And then he got some shots and, and made some big, huge shots down the stretch. This is a better scoring team than it looks at times, uh, but they need to take advantage of the quickness that they have. You know what they always say? I don't know who coined this, whether it was Al Davis or in football or whatever, but speed kills, and they've got it. They've got two quick, quick-on-quick point guards that can get to the rim, create, they can pick and roll with, they, they can lob with, and Rick Barnes – allows his players to shoot mid-range jump shots, which I still think is the best, one of the best weapons in the game, especially if you've got a quick point guard who, who people are deathly afraid of getting to the rim and he just stops on a dime in the middle of the lane and pops. That's, you can't stop that. Yeah, that's hard to guard. I I thought you were going to say just win baby, which was, uh, you know, what what they were able (laughs) to do. Uh, our guest is coming up in a moment. Uh, Chris, we always love having Seth Greenberg with us. Uh, he'll he'll stop in maybe once a season or so. But, you know, a guy who's really had an interesting career. He's gone from being a head coach for a lot of years at a few different stops in Virginia Tech and South Florida and Long Beach State uh, on his resume, among other places. But, you know, he's become one of the top analysts in the game. You'll see him on game day. You'll see him on big games or in the studio. And uh, he, he really does a great job, I think. You know, it's a shame he's so quiet and 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 reserved. Uh, yeah, you got to really, you got to really pull answers out of him, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> no, coach knows a ton of stuff. Uh, I mean, I think he's an even better analyst than he was a coach. And and you know, he was successful for twenty two seasons at three different D one schools. He just really studies it, and I I think he lives in Connecticut, and he's able to get into the studio, so he's their go to guy in the studio and. Um, he just, he studies it. I think only Fran Fraschilla, uh, among their talent that, that I am friends with, 
can match him in terms of their level of preparation. Uh, it's it's amazing. I, I I like to listen to those guys when they're doing a game or whether they're in studio because I always learn a lot. Yeah, I always feel like I learn stuff too uh, listening to those guys who uh, have they have the experience of a coach and and can express it well as a broadcaster. Seth, how you doing this morning? Doing great, doing great. Can't complain. We're playing games. Maybe not all of them, but we're playing. <laughs> playing as many oh, as possible. That's, that's better than I thought. Uh, Coach, I couldn't wait for you to come on the show because I wanted to ask you about something that you are uniquely qualified to talk about. Dana O'Neill uh, broke this story in The Athletic about how the NABC – in, in this time where, where the NCAA is, is getting ready to rewrite its constitution, the NABC, led by Craig Robinson, has, has put in its proposal for college basketball to govern itself with a leadership panel of coaches, ADs, league commissioners, and even athletes. Uh, I think it's a great idea. What do you think? Well, in a lot of ways, that's what college football is trying to do as well. I mean, so, uh, you know, when you think about it, uh, you know, College Football Association, they broke off and they have their, obviously, in, in a lot of ways, their own organization that got, not, does, not governs them in terms of NCAA rules, but governs them in terms of everything else. And then, obviously, college basketball is governed by the championships of the NCAA. I, I think there's a couple of things. One, would that mean that college basketball would also control all championships? Uh, so like, like that committee would control championships, you're still going to have the same problem. You don't have 354, uh, institutions with a commonality that you can create a set of rules for. I mean, you know, the idea in principle is good to just totally break away from the NCAA. So now all of a sudden college basketball is going to be working under an umbrella that college football isn't what's going to happen. All that stuff sounds good. What's going to happen is the power five conferences, power six, whatever you want it. They're going to come up with a, a way to conduct business. And then what's going to happen is that other institutions at other levels are going to decide you're going to conduct your business in the manner in which these institutions are conducting their business, or you can choose not to. And so like, you know, if the power fives decide uh, to pay their players, you know, if, if you're, the Big East, you're not a quote-unquote power five. You can decide to do exactly the same thing. You can conduct your business in that manner. But to totally separate and have your own organization, your own set of rules, when you're at Alabama and you've got football and basketball and you're going to have a distinct separate uh, set of bylaws for, for basketball and football, that, that's not going to fly. I mean, it's just not going to fly. Now, do I think that it's a good idea that we bring, you know, the coaches that are living it on a day-to-day basis and all the constituents that are involved in college basketball together to have a voice. There's no doubt about it. Uh, you know, the NBC is doing a good job. Craig's doing a really good job. I mean, uh, that sounds like something a little bit ambitious. It sounds like something in a lot of ways that you try to obviously create a bigger role for yourself. Yeah. But uh, I, I think what we need to see happen and what's going to happen. It's just a matter of time is the, is, is the power five conferences that were or the super six or whatever. They're going to come up with a, a set of bylaws that are going to govern schools that have that same mission and same commonality. And then everyone else in college basketball is going to decide whether they want to conduct it, how they want to conduct their business. Like the NCAA tournament's not going away. You know, it's not going away. 
So, I mean, we're still going to have the NCAA tournament and uh, and the Big Souths and the Atlantic Tens and all the other conferences are going to have an opportunity to participate. The bigger thing is going to be how they conduct their business on a daily basis. Are they going to have the opportunity, you know, are, are they going to decide to conduct their business like that other group of schools? Because let, let's face it, Chris, and you know this, you've been around it forever. You know, even within a conference, not everyone conducts their business the same way. When I was at Virginia yeah. Tech, we didn't conduct our, our business the same way absolutely after their business uh so i mean but when you have 354 schools and you have you know all the conferences that we have right now uh each conference might decide to conduct their business in a, in, a, in a particular manner but you know they're not they're not chartering at hartford you know i mean uh, you know they're not conducting you know you know there, there are schools that have cost of attendance and there are leagues that don't have cost of attendance there are schools and leagues that have cost of attendance yeah. and there are other schools in the same league that don't so what what's happened within those leagues those schools have decided how they want to conduct their business and that's great but to say we're just going to totally separate college basketball and have our own entity if that's what yeah. is basically you're describing come on man let's be serious i mean like there's an entity called college football yeah all right and and i i live and die college basketball but college football is a whole lot bigger than college basketball and just look at the ratings that just it, it's plain and simple all right. I mean, yep. we, have, we have the, you know, we have, we have the potato bowl that does a better rating for a college football game than almost every game that we have on college basketball, except maybe Duke, Carolina, Kansas, Kentucky, and those games. So I think it's ambitious. I think uh, conceptually it's good, but I, I think in the end, we're going to see uh, the power conferences uh, create a set of bylaws that everyone can choose to decide how they want to conduct their business. But the schools within that, confines will be able to conduct their business will we'll conduct their business in that matter well that leads beautifully into my next question and i was glad to hear you say that you think the ncaa can, tournament will continue with conference shifting that that started with uh oklahoma and texas decision to eventually join the sec and everything that has resulted from that do you think that uh the ncaa tournament could break off and I know our mutual friend Jay Billis thinks there could be a, a you know a power conference NCAA tournament, and he says, you know what, Chris, you would watch it, and he's right, I would watch it, but I love the fact that you know my alma mater, East Tennessee State or Belmont or whoever can can beat a big timer, and, and and I think that's what people like about the tournament. So, what do you think about the future of the NCAA's? I think it's going to remain the same in, in essence. Uh, it might not be run by the NCAA. It yeah. might be run by this new organization that, that, that basically is going to set the bylaws for, for college athletics, and they're going to be inclusive in the NCAA tournament. Uh, look, would people watch it? There's no doubt about it. People would watch. People watch college football playoffs. It doesn't include everyone. All right? It includes, you know, right now the four best teams perceived in college basketball. Uh, you know, it might end up including the, the the best eight teams. It's not all inclusive. You don't have Coastal Carolina really with a legitimate chance to, you know, compete for that championship. Having said that, I think there is a value. We've seen Loyola Chicago. We've seen George Mason. We've seen VCU. We've seen, you know, Hampton uh, get a, a first round win. We've seen a 16 and UMBC uh, in terms of the you know, the the drama that surrounds college basketball, the intrigue. Uh, why do people go to race car races uh, to, to see a crash? Well, what's a crash in the NCAA tournament? It's a one beat in a 16. It's, it's, it's <laughs> an improbable team making a run at Cinderella 
to the NCAA tournament uh, into the Final Four. So could it happen? Sure, it could happen. Would people watch? Without a doubt, would people would watch. Uh, but uh, I think that being inclusive has some value. I'm not saying it's the it's it's the solution to all, but it has some value. Now, the other option would be, all right, you're inclusive, but you know what? You're going to take the 68 best teams. Yeah. And then you're going to still include those teams that have a chance to pull that upset. All right. But you're not going to be inclusive in terms of, you know, picking a team that literally has no chance because, you know, why does the NCAA work? Well, again, the NCAA governs all championships and all division one is obviously you want to give every team in division one or every league in division one, a chance to play in the NCAA tournament. But if this group basically separated themselves, they're going to make the rules and they're going to say, you know what? That's great. I understand we are going to give everyone a chance, but we're going to pick our 68 best teams, no matter what conference they come from. Our guest is Seth Greenberg, outstanding analyst for ESPN. And I got an X's and O's question for you. Now, we always talk a lot about how offense has changed in basketball, but what's been most interesting to you about the way defenses have changed just maybe over the last decade or so where you, you see a lot more teams playing variations of zones and not just standard man-to-man or 2-3 or something like that? Well, I, I think one of the freedom movements changed everything, although we've gotten back to a pretty physical basketball this, this mm-hmm. season. I think the game's been more physical than ever. You know, Bills and I would disagree with that. I don't mind the physicality of the game. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, you've got to decide what you're going to give, what you're going to take away. You know, when my team's played, Rick Barnes of Tennessee played, you know, you're going to chuck cutters. You're going to try to disrupt the rhythm of the game. All the rules in college basketball now are made uh, for the offense. Yeah. For the offense. So I think what you're seeing people do is you're seeing people, it's a trickle-down effect. Uh, everyone's playing with four guards or four skilled players. Everyone's kind of gone to a, quote unquote positionless, although that's a disaster for some three point shots are up, three point percentages down, turnovers are up because you have more guys handling the basketball that can't make plays and are making bad decisions and throwing it to the wrong team and are put in positions to make, you know, bad plays. But coaching's like fashion. Uh, you know, right now positionless basketball is 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 the theme. Flow is the theme. Uh, you know, spread ball screens, you know, you're we, we play a more European basketball game right now than we ever played. If you think about it, our game looks like what's going on overseas to some extent in the NBA as well. I mean, the NBA, they're playing undersized fours at five right now. So what do you have to do? you got to be fairly creative. It started with uh, a lot of people way back. Like I switched one through five when I was at Long Beach State. I mean, I had hair on my head back then. <laughs> I, you know, now, 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 you know, and now all of a sudden, you know, switching is a big thing. I mean, you know, Bob Clockenberg, uh, who was uh, – an assistant coach, I think he was at UNLV at one point, but he was with the Seattle uh, Supersonics with George Carl. Uh, I saw a video on switching. I said, man, you know, we had a bunch of six, seven guys. This would be great. We could switch. We played positionless basketball at Long Beach State because that's the guys we could get. We played six, five wings, a point guard, and, and two, six, seven forwards, and that's kind of the way we played. And uh, I didn't realize I was so brilliant. <laughs> uh, so, so what you have to do is you have to, you have to adjust because there are more ball handlers, more shot makers. Uh, the, the the game is officiated. You can't use your arm bar. You got to play with your arms out. So uh, you know you've got to find ways to disrupt. I'm surprised that more teams aren't because of the rules soft pressing. All right, to make their opponent use six, seven, eight seconds of the clock, having to reset. And now they're only exposed to have to defend for about 12 seconds. I yeah. mean, I, 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 to me, 
that makes sense. Villanova does it some. They go that one, two, two. They actually play it pretty well. And then they get matched up. And, and now their their defense isn't as exposed in the half court as long. But yeah, people are playing some hybrids. I like if I coached and, and we did this every day, we went five on four, four on three every day, because at any time I could play triangle two and box one. Like coming out of timeout. I don't know why more guys don't, you know, hey, coming out of timeout. If I'm playing against Chris's team and Chris has two really good players. Odds are coming out of that timeout, those, one of those two guys is going to get a shot. So why wouldn't I either red deny, which is overplay him and I'll let those two guys catch the ball, or triangle and two and force someone else to get a shot, take that person out of their adjustment coming out of that timeout. I call it stealing a basket. So you're seeing coaches get a little bit more creative. Uh, Jim Beheim took his 2-3, and may, he's, people think it's a 1-3-1. One, one. It's not a 1-3-1. One, he's just starting it in a 1-1-3. One, one, uh, and the reason they started that, and they have it's not – they're not guarding anyone, but uh, because they put Buddy at the elbow to, to, because they were getting the ball to the high post too easily. So you make adjustments in your yeah. defense. I mean, Kermit Davis goes one three one when the ball comes out of the corner. He goes 2-3 zone. Uh, Josh Pastor's done some creative things defensively to disrupt the rhythm of the game. So you just try to uh, find different ways to disrupt and own the rhythm of the game as a coach. Seth, one more uh, quick, fun question for you. Uh, I just got back from Hawaii with Vanderbilt. We played in the Diamond Head Tournament out there. I, I wanted to ask you what you thought what was the best one of those you know, pre-conference tournaments that you've been a part of, whether it was as a coach or a broadcaster. Which one was most fun to go or just kind of experience or for your players, too, for that matter? Well, the one I won, probably. <laughs> uh, one, the ones where I came back one and two or own three, they weren't a lot of fun. Yeah, those weren't no, any fun. Uh, yeah, that's not, that's no not, matter how much good food you got. Yeah, you know, we played uh, at Virginia Tech. We played the first game that basically started the Battle of Atlantis. Uh, Lee Miller approached us. It was part of a doubleheader. Georgia Tech played Richmond. We played Mississippi State. Now, uh, so we went over to Atlantis. They gave us one hundred and fifty thousand dollars, paid all our expenses. So AD was and gave us forty. 40 plane tickets, 40 rooms, all our meals. So the AD was happy. Yeah, he still fired me, but he was happy. <laughs> uh, he actually brought his whole family. You know, we we, we, took, we we brought his family on vacation. That was great. You know, it's like that in bowl games, ADs. They bat in bowl games. They, you know, like they have to be there for two weeks and they get bonuses. It's amazing. That's a, that's another thing. Why does, a fo- why, does a fo- why does an AD get a bonus for the football team to go to a, a bowl game? Like, <laughs> I mean, it makes no sense, but uh, that was a great trip because we played Mississippi State. We got there a couple of days early. Mississippi State was uh, – that's when they had the, uh, the big guy that was really uh, – that was right before they went to they went to Hawaii and had the fight in Hawaii. Oh, and, I remember that. Yeah, and uh, and we just kicked the crap out of them. It was great. It was so good we stayed an extra day. <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty good. It was, a, it was a one-off game, but we ended up with like five days in Atlantis. We practiced there. The hospitality was amazing. That's always a, you know, that's always a really good trip. All, I'll tell you what, all these tournaments are phenomenal. The attention to detail that the organizers uh, go through is, is amazing. I mean, you know, I'm not going to brag, but ESPN events – uh, does not a good job, but a great job, whether you're in Puerto Rico, whether you're in Orlando, whether you're in Charleston, uh, whether it's the Champions Classic, whether whatever they do, uh, the attention to detail to make sure the players have a great experience, is, there's nothing that is left for chance. Coach, I'm going to sneak in one more. Uh, you're especially qualified to answer this because you coached in the ACC for a number of years. You know, everybody knows – 
from the surface that the ACC is not having the best year. I was surprised to learn that they're 10 and 29 uh, in quad uh, one games, seven and 25 against Ken Palm top 25. Is this just a, the cyclical nature of conferences and, and it happens to be the ACC's year to be down or, or, or is there greater forces at work? Yeah. I mean, it usually doesn't happen to the ACC. I mean, let's be honest. Yeah. I mean, you know, we've seen it happen to the SEC. And, and quite honestly, yeah. you know, what's going on in the SEC, people need to give Mike Slob a lot of credit. Because when he took over as commissioner of the SEC, he said, you know what, this isn't good enough. We have all the resources in the world. We should have competitive yeah. teams in the, in the sport of basketball. And he made a, a genuine push to impact how institutions looked at their basketball programs. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, yeah, look, it was eventually going to happen. Uh, you know, you look at the ACC, they didn't do as well in the portal. You look at the ACC, you know, they had some guys leave. They And then you had some teams underperforming. I mean, let's face it. I mean, Walker Kessler in North Carolina, they'd look a little different. Yep. I mean, just, you know, that's just, you know, that's just no the doubt. way uh, you know, Tyrus Radford goes to A&M. If he's at, at Tech, they got one more guard that can make a play. They would look a little different. Uh, you know, there's no doubt about that. Uh, so I, I, I think that as you look at the league as a whole, uh, yeah, I mean, I can't I can't remember a time the league was this bad. Now, having said that, Miami's playing better now. I think they've won eight in a row. They're, you know, their backcourt is really good. Uh, they're up almost 10 points a game. They're shooting about, I think, 5 and 8% from the field and, and, and the three better compared to last year. But did they take care of business in the non-conference? I don't think they took care of good business in the non-conference. Florida State, for the first time, and Leonard's an amazing, just an amazing job, but they're relying on three freshmen in more prominent roles. You know, that hasn't happened in a really, really long time. If you think about it, now, Wake Forest is having a great year. They're going to play themselves into the NCAA tournament. Uh and why? Well, if you think about it, Steve Forbes has done a really good job of getting in Mortal. the portal. All right, Dallas Walton, he comes from a winning pro, a, a winning program, and a really good coach. Colorado. from Boy, Alondis Williams comes from Oklahoma, playing for a really good coach in Lon Kruger. Obviously, his own kid, Williamson, you know, played for him at, 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 uh, at East Tennessee. So, I mean, what he's done, he's, he's really used his network, his contacts to put together a team that can compete right away. But, you know, no one saw Virginia being like this. Now, Virginia's playing better now, but they dug themselves a serious hole and they can't score. Like, where are the pros? Like, my biggest thing with the ACC, where are the pros? When you think of the ACC, like, well, the ACC, you know, we needed, to, we needed to get guys as freshmen and develop and so as juniors and seniors that we could win. Now, Xavier Dabell and Jamal Gordon as seniors, they won out Duke and out Carolina. Now, Malcolm Delaney, Jeff Allen, and, and Deron Washington, A.D. Visayo, they won 10 games in the ACC as a freshman. Hmm. People don't remember that. Those guys averaged 11, 10, or, uh, 10 wins a game a year in the ACC over four years in a 16-game schedule. But, you know, what, what you've got to do is you've got to, you've got to look kind of, you know, big picture. I mean, certain programs have, have not recruited as well in the last two or three years or have lost players. And that, that's just, you know, just the way it is. You go up and down the league. I mean, Syracuse, right, they don't have a shot creator. They got hurt. Quincy Garrier left. All right. Cole Swider's a nice player, but you know what? He doesn't bring it to the table. What well, Quincy does, you know, Jimmy Bingham's a nice player, but they don't have a shot. You know, Kadari Richmond left. All right. You know, 
you can't you can't you can't survive that. You need them. Louisville, all right. They are they're in a little bit of unrest. All right. You expect Louisville to be good? They're not good. You know, now they've won a bunch of games in a row. Now I think they've won three league games in a row, if I'm not mistaken. But you look at them. Malik Williams is a holdover. All right. And then if you look at the rest of their roster, you know, Noah Locke was just an okay player who could make a shot at, at Florida. Maybe it's a good player. He's not a you know a great player. You look at their roster. And it, it's not like it's a roster that scares you. Where are the pros? And and that's really what's happened in the ACC. I think they've hit a little roadblock in, in terms of recruiting and then got hurt in a negative way by the portal. Always a pleasure to have you on with us. Hope we can catch up with you again down the road. Uh, here's hoping we get in as many games as possible and uh, the season starts to look a little more normal here pretty soon. Thanks for having me. Your guys are playing better, man. That was a good win the other day. Yeah, that was a good win. They they held on and got it done. Matty so. Pittman is the real deal. He is. He is. No question. That was Seth Greenberg, ESPN analyst and one of the best in the business. Really appreciate him spending a few minutes with us here on our Blue Ribbon podcast. Uh, Chris, one other note that I thought was interesting that came down in the last couple days. Uh, Murray State is going to go from the OVC to the Missouri Valley Conference. And um, – while I hate to see the OVC lose a lot of its traditional teams, as has happened here in the last few months, um, I think Murray going to the Missouri Valley and joining Belmont there uh, is a really good thing. I'm glad to see those two continue their rivalry as conference rivals. And I think, you know, as a basketball school and, and really one of the best mid-major programs for a lot of years, Murray really is a nice addition to that conference. So to me, that that was really good news for the Missouri Valley. And, and again, I, I'm a little biased on this because it did the games for Belmont for a lot of years and saw that Belmont-Murray rivalry up close a whole bunch of times. I, I thought that was a cool thing that, that just happened, and uh, Murray will join them in the uh, Valley. I think it was a great pickup. I know the Southern Conference uh, had talked to Murray State a little bit. Uh, people don't realize this. Murray has 17 all-time NCAA tournament appearances. Of course, in 19, they had the number two pick in the draft in John Morant, and in the last decade, they've they've put Cameron Payne and Isaiah Canaan into the into the uh, NBA as well. This is funny. In 2017, when the Valley uh, added Valparaiso, Murray State was involved but didn't make the cut. And since that time, they've gone 135, and they've been in the NCAA's twice under Coach Matt McMahon, who's a good dude. And I'm happy to say. This is so cool and makes me feel old, but he started reading Blue Ribbon College Basketball Yearbook when he was a teenager. Uh, and he talked. We, we talk about that all the time. I always do the Murray State story. So now I'm going to have to be a Valley guy because I, I always um, do the Belmont story too. So I look forward to, to talking to Casey Alexander and Matt McMahon about their, their new digs uh, next, for next year's Blue Ribbon. All right, Chris, we have uh, reached the uh, almost the end of our show, but now we're going to uh, crank it up with another fast-growing segment, and this will be our spoiler-filled Book of Boba Fett review segment. Uh, now, we did this with The Mandalorian a couple of years ago, and, and, and it really, oh. I, I thought, just took off to rave reviews nationally. But The calls, the letters, the yes, emails. exactly. Unbelievable. <laughs> but there is a, a new Star Wars series out called The Book of Boba Fett on Disney+, and they've, they've come out with two episodes uh, we won't go too deep into the second one because we don't want to spoil it too much for people who haven't seen it. But um, it, it's really interesting to kind of show you the backstory of, of Boba Fett and, and how they present it with him having these dreams and, and, and recollections of his life to that point and how he uh, 
climbed out of the Sarlacc pit and uh, was taken in, really captured by the Tuscan Raiders, and then sort of became part of their tribe over a period of time. It, it's it's been interesting to watch for the last couple of weeks. It's cool, and and you know I I think we see what shaped him. Those Tuscans, they're they're some cranky dudes, and. I can only surmise it's because they live in the desert and, and chafing must be a constant issue with those guys. <laughs> uh, yeah. I don't think there's a lot of lotion out there in the desert. Is there? <laughs> yeah. Because you know, they, they had Boba Fett captured and, and, and they, they gave him no sunblock. That cat needed some moisturizer. Oh man. He he, yeah. He needed some SPF 100 out there, especially not just one but, son. Uh, they got two sons out there in Tatooine. Oh, it was crazy. But, uh, no, the show is great, and, uh, you know, John Favreau, the showrunner, uh, the creator of The Mandalorian, who also pitched Boba Fett, ha- has written the first two episodes, uh, and and he, he, he hasn't directed them, but he's written them, and, and he's just such a, a Star Wars uh, aficionado, and I love Boba Fett already. Uh, Fennec Shand, his sidekick, uh, bad A... Uh, martial arts type person she's a a killer and and she's had some great lines too and i i just think it's so clever because mark hamill had a great quote in one of the the shows i watched where okay so they they had the prequels and then they had the the three originals that we all knew and love but and then then they started up the franchise again and you saw all the characters in older age but what about that interim of time that wasn't covered by the movies. And, and I think these shows on Disney are doing a great job of, of filling in the blanks. And there's so much storytelling available. And, uh-huh. and when, when it's in the hands, Robert Rodriguez, uh, who's done the spy kids movie and, and, and uh, a bunch of other good films. And, and it's the ultimate independent director. He's a co-show runner on Boba Fett. And, and, uh, I just think the job they've done as Star Wars fans and great storytellers, uh, man, uh, the, it's as big as the galaxy itself, uh, the, the stories they can tell with, with these characters. Chris, uh, we'll talk to you again next week. Hopefully uh, we'll play as many games as we possibly can, and uh, we'll do it again on our Blue Ribbon podcast. I look forward to it, buddy. Safe travels. He's Chris Dorch. I'm Kevin Ingram. We'll talk to you soon.